classical music. On December 23rd, 1776, 12 days shy of the six-month anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Paine, the American patriot, wrote a pamphlet which he entitled The Crisis. In this pamphlet, he described the situation in the colonies at that time. There were many Tories who still were not supporting the cause of liberty. He described the battle at Fort Lee, of which he had been a part, and how General Howe, the British general's army, tremendously outnumbered the American militia led by George Washington. He talked about the uncertainty of this war. And he began that pamphlet with these words, these are the times that try men's souls. You know, I've thought about the past year, the year and a half that many of us experienced. Eight, rather, well, let's see, two, four, eight weeks from now, I'll be 85. And I must say, in my almost 85 years, I have to look at the past year to year and a half as one of the most turbulent times I've ever seen. So many of us have known severe illnesses, illnesses in our family and illnesses we've suffered ourselves. We've seen injuries through traffic accidents. We've seen families fall apart. People have lost jobs. Many have had difficult times economically. And of course, as Dave mentioned last Sunday, the recent rulings by the Supreme Court, so many things have been happened, happening that there's just a sense <laughs> something's falling apart. Recently, I had an email from a brother in Indiana church. He says, it seems things are really heating up. Is it the end times? I think Tom Paine's phrase, these are the times that trouble men's souls, seems to fit the era in which we're presently living. The 1960s were a time of great turmoil. Those of us who were in church leadership at that time walked around in a little bit of confusion because we were encountering things we had never seen before. Demonic presences, move the Holy Spirit, the Vietnam War, which divided our nation, the moves of Martin Luther King Jr. as he organized a Southern Leadership Conference and at Birmingham and Montgomery and Selma, and in some places, anarchy almost reigned in the 1960s. Some of the young people were saying, don't trust anyone over the age of 30. In 1960, I was 30, so I no longer was trusted. And at the beginning of that era, George Beverly Shea introduced into the Billy Graham Crusades and began to sing week after week and service after service in times like these. In times like these, we need a Savior. In times like these, we need an anchor. Be very sure 
Be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. That rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. Be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. I think that song introduced by George Cheverly, Beverly Shea to the Billy Graham Crusades is appropriate for us, isn't it? In times like these, we need an anchor. As I've thought about the times and what we're experiencing, it seems to me that one of the chapters of God's Word that is most appropriate for us to have in our thinking in these days, these days is that marvelous chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the faith chapter because over and over again in a rhythmic uh, rephrase, there's constantly by faith, by faith, by faith. And many, many things are introduced that happened by faith. So let's just survey that chapter a little bit this morning. It begins in the King James Version now. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Some of the more modern versions say faith is the certainty or the assurance of things hoped for. That word translated substance or assurance is the Greek word hypostasis. What does that word really mean? Well, etymologically, hopa means under, and the other word is from the Greek term stasis, which means stand. It's, it means something that you stand on that is solid and firm. It's the same as our Greek word podium. Podium comes from the Greek word foot. And so podium is something you stand on that is solid and firm. It's where we put a lectern or we put a pulpit. And hypostasis is that same kind of word. It's something solid. It's something firm. Sometimes it is translated foundation. But here's an interesting thing. For many years, scholars thought that the Greek language of the New Testament was a very holy religious language that God had introduced totally unknown before because it had many terms that were not found in any of the classical Greek writings. However, that belief was undone in the middle 1800s when various discoveries of papyri took place. Some of them are very interesting. As certain scholars said, well, we believe because of evidence we found their papyri in this area, so uh, people were digging, trying to find them. One place was Crocodopolis, a place where they worshipped crocodiles, and there were mummified crocodiles. And one of the diggers, frustrated because he couldn't find any papyri, picked up a mummified crocodile, threw it, and it broke open, and it was full of papyri. Now, these papyri were routine documents from that era. Papyri was the equivalent of today's paper. They were letters to people, uh, betrothal vows, various things of that nature. But also they found title deeds to property. And hypostasis was the word that was used to describe a collection of papers that comprised a title deed to property. 
And because of that, some scholars said that means then we need, need to render Hebrews 11.1 1 is faith is the title deed to that which we hope for. That's pretty strong, isn't it? But others said, wait a minute, that doesn't fit. Because in Hebrews 1.3, describing Jesus, it says he is of the exact apostasis of God. And so most versions say nature, and others say that means and we should render Hebrews 11:1 1 by substance, because Christ having the same substance as the Father. We'll come back to that in a minute. The other word, hope, the substance of things that we hope for, the word hope is the Greek word elpis. Elpis does not mean something we wish for or something desire. If that had been what the writer meant, he would have used the word thelema. Thelema is a wish or desire, but elpis is something that we are certain we'll receive. There's no doubt. So notice that. Notice that. Faith is the what? This is one of those times I think it's foolish to argue over whether it should be title deed or substance because both fit. Faith assures us that this hope is ours. It is our title deed to that. But also it gives it substance. It is so real that we possess it now as if we already possessed it. And if you follow that whole train of thought through Hebrews 11 into Hebrews 12 and you get to the last part of Hebrews 12 and it talks about this glorious thing that is ours and it doesn't say you will come to Mount Zion. It doesn't say you will come to this wonderful gathering of angels. It doesn't say you will come into Jesus. It doesn't say you will come into the company of the saints. It says you have come. And so it's appropriate to render hypothesis, I think, by both of those. It's a title deed. It's what assures me that that for which I hope is mine. And it is so real, it is as if I now even hold it in my hands. And not only that, Elpis, <laughs> certainty, no doubt, it's mine. What is the definition of faith? A while back, Daniel, Mac, uh, Daniel uh, Clutter and I discussed this. And so I went through the New Testament and looked for the different ways, the Greek word pistis, which we translate faith. How is that word used? I found eight different, sometimes definitions and sometimes shades of meaning. For instance, in Jude verse 3, You'll read that we, it is a faith once delivered to the saints. And you read the context. And what he is talking about is what the apostles imparted to us. All scripture falls under one of three headings. It is facts to be believed. It is commands to be obeyed. It is promises to be received. And that to which Jude referred in Jude verse 3 is all of those. It is the doctrine, it is the, the dogma that the apostles have passed on to us. So in that case, faith refers to dogma. 
And there are others that we notice as well. But in every one of these, there's the underlying thought of belief and trust. So faith is the substance, it is the title deed to that for which we hope in this particular passage. What is that for which we hope? As you follow that thought through Hebrews, you'll notice it first says, by faith we believe that the worlds were framed out of nothing. And then it begins to move through a series of events, and some of them miraculous. The flood, for example, the flood of Noah. It had never rained before until Genesis chapter 6. The earth, Scripture says, had been watered by a mist that was constantly rising. And so when God said to Noah, I want you to build an ark because there's going to be rain, I wonder if Noah said, what's that? Because rain had never happened before. But it did rain, and the fountains of deep broke up. And here was this tremendous flood that covered the earth. So much involved there that shows the hand of divinity, not something that just happened. Interestingly, there are four accounts of the flood in Sumerian and Akkadian literature, very ancient literature. There's also a very extensive account of it in the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, which is Babylonian. That particular one is very interesting because it describes many things about the flood, and the details are often similar to what we find in Genesis. Of course, it exaggerates. The size of the ark in Genesis is so big. In the Gilgamesh epic, it's huge. <laughs> but still, essentially, the truth is there. Evidence, you see, that the Bible doesn't just record fantasy. By faith, Abraham left a country, went out. He talks about his children, and they lived in tents, and they were looking for a country. But it says if that's all they were looking for was a country or a city, they could have gone back to where they came from because that's what they had. Ur of Chaldees, from which Abraham came, was an amazing city, very advanced. Archaeologists uh, excavating that area began to discover these looking, well, tanks. They were oblong, and they had a hole in the end, and they wondered, what are these? We've never seen anything like this before. And finally, through paintings and drawings and other means, they realized they were bathtubs, just like you have in your bathroom. A bathtub with a place in the end, and you put a stopper, and you take a bath, and you pull it out, and it drains. Ur of Chaldees had many things that we have today, and that's where Abraham and his father Haran and others left, left and finally traveled. So the book of Hebrews said if they wanted a city, they didn't need to be living in tents and wandering around in deserts. They could just go back home. <laughs> they already had one, but it said they were not looking for a city built by human hands, but they were looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. And then it goes on and talks about some more miracles. One of them is the birth of Isaac. Now think about that. Here was Sarah, years past menopause. And here was Abraham, so old that I'm sure he was already impotent. 
And God said, you guys go at it and I'll give you a child. And they did and he did. Now can you imagine poor Sarah, a woman in her 90s, having to take care of a kid? <laughs> I watched some of you younger mothers. Remember my own wife. Quite a challenge. A miracle, miracle, miracle. All these things happen because they believe and trusted God. But all that happened in this world wasn't really what they were looking for and hoping for. They were looking and hoping for something beyond this life. When you read the closing verses of Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll get maybe to that part in a moment, but notice the closing verse. It talks about these promises, the hope, the faith that they had, but none of them received the promises in their lifetime because God didn't want them to receive them without us. Think about that. The Lord God looked down through the centuries of time and he saw humanity. And as the book of Revelation tells us, he has that time in which every people from every tongue and every nation and every tribe will be praising him. If those Old Testament saints had received it in their lifetime, it would have just been one nation. Not only that, you and I would have been left out. Aren't we glad that God looked down through the centuries and saw me and you and every one of us and said, I'm not going to let Abraham have it. I'm not going to let Moses have it. I'm not going to let David have it. They're going to have to wait a while because I want Jim to have it. I want Bill to have it. I want Matthew to have it. Isn't that a staggering thought? None of these receive in their lifetime because God did not want them to receive it apart from us. What a thought. If you begin reading at verse 32, wow, what a victorious picture. David and Samson and Gideon you know, they subdued kingdoms, they overcame lions, and so on. And you say, whoopee, boy, I'm telling you what, if we have enough faith, we can whip anything. Nobody can stop us. Who can be against us? When I hear that, what can man do to me? I remember Stephen, who was stoned. I remember James, one of the twelve, who was beheaded. Peter and John lashed. Peter later crucified upside down. Paul beheaded. That's what man can do to me. But he cannot rob me of the glory that God has for those who live by faith in him. And so you begin reading verse 32, 33, and 
34, and you get to 35, and all of a sudden, halfway through 35, it changes. It changes, doesn't it? They lived in deserts, they lived in holes, they wandered about, they were beaten. It said women received their dead back to life, but some wanted a better resurrection. <laughs> some were sawn asunder. You know, we don't know for sure, but tradition says that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half, and this is something I've never seen before, by a wooden saw. <laughs> I've never seen a wooden saw, but getting sawed in half by a wooden saw sounds kind of painful, doesn't it? So faith doesn't mean that this life is a breeze. It doesn't mean we will always win everything in this life. It doesn't mean that we will escape sickness and disease and injury or prison, but what it does mean is that that for which we hope is ours. And as Paul wrote, if we, we are most miserable if we have hope in this life only. In times like these, in these days that trouble men's souls, it's important for us to remember really what it's all about. <laughs> and it's not all about cradle to grave. It's not all about how happy a marriage you can have, although praise God that's important. It's not all about who likes me and who doesn't. What it's all about is the God who's waiting with arms to embrace us. It's all about being part of that vast host of every tribe and tongue and nation that will sing endless praises to our King. June 1990-1957 was one of the busiest months of my entire life. Barb was pregnant with Greg, and he was due any day. I finished five years at Tulsa Bible Seminary and graduated. For four and a half years, I'd been the minister of a little country church in Claremont County, Ohio. And some elders from a circuit of churches in Highland County had come to the present seminary and say we are looking for a minister and he contacted me and met with me and he said you know I think really these folks need you more than those folks. Salt Air Church which is in Claremont County my friend Jerry Klein and his wife also from Muskogee had come to the seminary and he was my helper and so I thought okay here's a man that can lead Salt air, and I will go to Mowrystown. So we made the move, and that was in June. In the middle of all that, my father died. My Uncle Marion called and said, your father died today. What was I supposed to do? 
I think the funeral was on Wednesday. So I took Barbara and John back to a family at Salt Air who were just like parents, Grandma and Grandpa Hall, and left her and John there, knowing that if Greg popped out before I got back that <laughs> the folks at Salt Air would look after things. Then Diana and Jimmy and I jumped in the car and we drove to Lafayette, Indiana and picked up my aunt and drove to Muskogee and attended the funeral and immediately drove back and just shortly, almost immediately after Greg was born. Horribly busy couple of weeks, frankly. And I had no time to mourn my father. About a year later. I was out on the back porch or the patio of the parsonage almost exactly a year later and I began to think about my father and I began to weep. And I looked up at the clouds. God, is it possible that in this moment you're gathering the angels? You're gathering all the saints. My father with you. In a moment will I hear the blast. And you with my father will come. It didn't happen. <laughs> but someday it will. Someday Jesus is going to say to Mary and Moses and Abraham, and Isaac, and Bill, and Jim, and Dorothy, you know, <laughs> come on, get together. Gabriel, get your horn, put it to your lips, get ready to blast. Now everybody, let's give a shout. <laughs> and Gabriel will blast on his horn. And Jesus, with a host of angels, and the spirits of all who have been with Christ up to that point will descend upon the earth. Those spirits will be given new bodies. And those of us who are still here, our bodies will be glorified. And we will all rise together in the air to spend eternity with him. That is the assurance, the hope our faith gives us. In these times that try men's souls, sometimes when I'm with somebody, we're talking about the times and I say, come Lord Jesus, and they chuckle. Hear me, it is no chuckle. <laughs> come Lord Jesus.